The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month, a look at vision loss through macular degeneration and part one of vision loss and your personal appearance on ACB Reports for July 2006. Dr. Barbara Seipel is a consulting psychologist at Edinburgh University in Pennsylvania. During the 44th Annual Convention of the American Council of the Blind in 2005, Dr. Seipel shared information about her research on vision loss through macular degeneration. Thank you. I want to talk with you about my dissertation research that I completed last year through the Fielding Graduate University. I earned my doctorate degree in clinical psychology, and I've been working as a clinical psychologist for 16 years. I have RP. For those of you who don't know what RP is, the full name is retinitis pigmentosa. RP is characterized by night blindness, tunnel vision, and problems with depth perception and color vision. But one of the unique characteristics about RP is that it is a progressive disorder and it typically takes a long time for a person's vision to gradually change and finally lead to blindness. I was diagnosed at the age of seven. I'm in my mid-40s now, still have a little bit of vision. But the interesting thing was at the age of seven when I was diagnosed, my parents were told, take her home, teach her Braille, She'll be blind by the time she graduates from high school. So I want to give you some idea of the gradual progression that takes place with RP. One of my research participants made this statement. It is much harder going blind than being blind. He was referring to this slow, gradual process that takes place. For one thing, you have a certain amount of vision for a period of time. And you kind of get used to doing things in a certain way. For example, when I was a teenager, I was able to read print. I could ride a bicycle. I could see my friends' faces, that kind of thing. And that lasted for a while, so there are periods of stability, periods of stable vision. But then at some point, there's either a gradual or precipitous change. And that requires making changes myself in order to adjust, in order to accommodate. Well, that's what I became interested in, in terms of my dissertation research. How do people with RP make these changes as their vision slowly declines over periods of even decades? How do they accommodate? How do they respond to having to make these ongoing changes over and over again? Now, in order to talk about the coping responses that I looked at, I need to explain to you about a model that I used. It's called the trans-theoretical model of change. So if you think about any changes that you've ever made in your life, any changes at all that have required you to make any kind of behavioral changes, you may be able to relate to what I'm going to talk about in terms of this stage. Prochaska developed this stage model, and what he did was he looked at psychotherapy models that are used across the world, really, in terms of helping people make change. He looked at psychotherapy, behavior therapy, cognitive therapy, reality therapy, and he took the most effective components of each of these therapies, and he said, how is it that these people are making the kind of changes they need to make? Maybe at 
quitting smoking or making changes in drinking behavior or other kinds of things like losing weight. He developed the TMC, and this model underscores two important points. One is that when we make any kind of behavior change, we go through stages. The other thing is that if you know what stage you're in, then certain interventions can be made or can be targeted given the stage you're in to help facilitate the adjusting process. So the five stages that Prochaska and DiClemente talk about in terms of their TMC are pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. The pre-contemplation stage is when we really don't recognize there's any problem. We really don't recognize that there's anything we need to change. So with a person with RP, they may notice, yes, they have difficulty seeing at night, or yes, they bump into things here and there or miss a step, but they don't really see that they need to do anything to make any changes. However, people around them may see, hmm, Barbara's bumping into walls here and there, or she's missing steps and maybe needs to do something about that. But the person themselves isn't really ready to make a change. That's the pre-contemplation stage. The contemplation stage is when a person starts to think about, well, okay, maybe I am making appearing clumsy or bumping into a couple, you know, steps or walls here and there, but it's not that big a deal. But they start to consider that maybe there is a problem. So they start to contemplate. That's why it's called the contemplation stage. And then the next stage is the preparation. That's where the person really starts to recognize, okay, there is a problem. I really need to do something about this. I'm tripping more often than I need to, or I'm not able to cope at night very well because of my night blindness. Maybe I better think about getting a guide dog or using a cane. That's the preparation stage. And then in the action stage, the person actually makes behavioral change. They actually enroll in a program to learn to use a cane, or they enroll in a program to obtain a guide dog. That's the actual action stage. And then finally is the maintenance stage. When a person is doing what they need to do to effectively deal with the problematic behavior, and in this case it's RP constantly requiring that we adjust to our changing vision, when a person's been doing that for at least six months, they're regarded as being in the maintenance stage. Every person making any type of change, including dealing with RP, goes through these five stages. They are progressive, they're sequential, and they often cycle and recycle through these stages. But this served as a good model for me to look at the coping process of individuals with retinitis pigmentosa. So I applied this model, and I had three thoughts I'm going to share with you briefly my three hypotheses and my three findings, and then I'll talk about some practical implications of these. First, I wanted to look at focus of coping. There are avoidance coping strategies, and there are approach coping strategies. Some examples of approach coping strategies include seeking information about the situation. With RP, it might be, well, I'm going to get all the information I can and start reading about it. I'm going to learn about it. Now, when I was seven, of course, I was too young to really grasp the, the reality of what it was really going to mean for me to live with this disorder. But, of course, at the time, my parents, you know, acquired information and, you know, got the information that they could to start reading about it. That's a way to really approach COPE. Another one is to make a plan and 
then put it into action. So that's where a person might say, well, okay, I think it's time for me to obtain a guide dog. I'm having difficulty. I live in an area where there's a lot of snow. And I don't know about you, but canes in heavy amounts of snow sometimes is really incompatible. So um, making a decision to obtain a guide dog, that's putting a plan into action. That's another approach coping strategy. On the other hand, there are avoidance coping strategies, and they may include passivity, doing nothing, um, denial-like processes, saying, hmm, okay, well, I, I don't really think I have RP, even though all three different doctors have told me I have RP. That's kind of a denial-like process. Or wishful thinking, well, maybe I really won't lose my vision. Those are avoidance strategies. Now, what I want to tell you is that they aren't mutually exclusive. We don't only use approach strategies or avoidance strategies. We actually use both. Well, what I predicted, if you think about these five stages of behavior change that I just described, I predicted that approach coping would actually increase as people advanced through these five stages of behavior change and that avoidance coping would be used relatively stable across the five stages. And that is, in, in fact, what I found. So what I'm really saying to you is that as a person advances through these five TMC stages and they start to, you know, move through, well, recognizing there's a problem, recognizing what obstacles really need to be um, looked at and faced with RP, Changes in reading, changes in communication. You know, at some point you can read uh, regular print, and then at some point you have to move to large print, and then at some point you have to move to screen reading software. And those kinds of transitions are what I'm talking about. You know, it's really quite demanding. So I'll talk about the general implications of that in a minute. Another hypothesis that I looked at was with method of coping, cognitive and behavioral methods of coping. Cognitive coping strategies include when we think about things. We think about things in a variety of ways, but they're internal mechanisms. Behavioral coping strategies involve overt behaviors, actual things that we do. Well, at the same time, looking at these five TMC stages, I predicted that behavioral coping strategies would increase as one advanced through these five TMC stages, and also that cognitive coping would remain relatively stable throughout the five stages. And that is, again, what I found to be true. And what that really means is that people think about making changes before they actually do them. Well, you might sit there and say, well, that's not really that you know, illuminating. Maybe you all knew that. But with RP, I think it does have some pertinent... It's relative, and I'll, again, talk about that in just a moment. Finally, the third hypothesis I looked at was adjustment scores. I took the TMC stages the five of them, and I predicted that individuals at the beginning and the end of the TMC stage, for example, those in the pre-contemplation stage and those in the maintenance stage, they would actually show higher adjustment scores on the certain instrument that I used than individuals in the middle. And that is, in fact, again, what I found. Some of you may be familiar with Dr. Dean Tuttle um, out of Colorado. Well, he stated in one of his books on self-esteem that that's what he found. He found that individuals, if you look at the continuum of vision loss, and you look at those with really good vision and those of us with really poor vision, that those are the individuals that are the most 
well-adjusted, if you will, and that those in the middle, those people losing their sight, those people who are dealing with this gradual vision loss are actually having a bit of a harder time. And so what that means is that with this knowledge, we can take this information and really apply it. How can we do that? I have five points I want to make in terms of the implications of my research. One is that the TMC model is really important for us to be familiar with it. How do we make changes? If you think about this five-stage model, it will help you to understand that, you know what, we do think about things oftentimes for quite some time before we actually do anything about the behavior. So if we're dealing with having to change the way we communicate or having to change the way we, you know, use a mobility um, pattern, those things take time. We think about them before we actually do them. So if you happen to know someone with RP or you happen to be working with a client with RP, it really makes sense that we be patient and, and understand that they may be in the pre-contemplation stage or the contemplation stage. They may not be ready to do anything yet and that we need to understand that. Another implication is that the TMC, the trans-theoretical model of change, can be used as a barometer of adjustment. I've now said that I determined through my data collection and my results that people in the middle stages have the hardest time in terms of adjusting. So that's where it's really helpful that we're most supportive of either our family members or if you're, as I said, a professional working with someone with RP, that it's very important that you're uh, most sensitive about the challenges that are associated with gradual vision loss. Also, that during those middle stages, we want to make sure that the interventions are appropriate. So when these individuals with RP are having the hardest time, we want to really make sure that the types of interventions we suggest or recommend are appropriate. Let's just say, for example, that somebody would have suggested I get a guide dog when I was 18 years old. Um, or start to use a cane when I was 18 years old. When I was 18 years old, I could read the newspaper. I could walk down the street. I could see pretty well. Um, again, at that time, my vision wasn't very advanced in terms of the loss. So it would be more appropriate later in my process of losing my sight that those kinds of recommendations would be made. Finally, I want to talk, say a word about avoidance strategies. I think historically we've uh, looked at avoidance strategies or, or maybe read that denial-like strategies are not healthy. They're maladaptive. In fact, what I've found is that individuals with RP go through this long, grueling process. It's a series of crises that happen in their lives. You might regard it as a slow personal catastrophe because these catastrophic times in our lives come up where we're uh, asked or even demanded by life to just make all these changes given the way our vision is declining. So what we want to realize is that avoidance strategies like withdrawal, like passivity, like wishful thinking, those actually facilitate the adjusting process rather than 
impede the adjusting process. So if you ever have thought to yourself or heard someone say, oh, so-and-so's in denial or so-and-so, you know, is crazy. Maybe they're thinking, you know, wish, using wishful thinking or fantasizing. Well, they're not going to lose their vision or whatever. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Denial-like uh, strategies can be used to protect us. If things become too overwhelming, they're too scary, they're too whatever, we can use those for a short time and only for a short time. I, I want to comment that if you do use them for very long periods of time, it, it does become maladaptive. But what I want to stress is that along with approach strategies and cognitive behavioral strategies, that avoidance strategies are not a bad thing. They actually facilitate the adjusting process. Um, I want to finish by saying that in order to complete my doctoral work, it was really important for me to have support, not only from you know my family and, and, and my friends, um, but ACB. I became affiliated with ACB through winning a scholarship back in 1995. Thank you. I'm from Pennsylvania. It was the William Corey Scholarship, and it was really, really special. And in order to, uh, of course, receive it, I attended my first ACB convention, and it was in Greensboro, North Carolina. And it was very, very eye-opening for me. I had um, just uh, I met so many wonderful people. But not only that, as a person who was slowly losing my vision, I learned how to do certain things. I mean, I just had no idea how to, you know, I was starting to have trouble organizing my clothes and clothes or try to figure out what color something was. I mean, there were all these really simple or seemingly simple suggestions that people would make. Well, put a safety pin in your tag or, you know, do this or do that. And I, I mean, they were things I'd never even thought about or never been told about because I just didn't know. So this is a wonderful way for people with RP and, and other visual impairments certainly to come on board, meet all you wonderful people with all your wonderful suggestions and recommendations. And thank you again for having me. Dr. Barbara Seipel was recorded in Las Vegas. From the American Council of the Blind, you're listening to ACB Reports. Coping with vision loss requires that individuals make some adjustments in the way we accomplish many daily tasks. Here's Lynn Cooper with some thoughts on vision loss and personal appearance. What we find is a lot of seniors are being affected with low vision, and we need to really re-examine how we uh, look at our daily tasks, things that we sort of took for granted for years. The glass is half full, but we just have to find a way to, uh, to drink it. The aging eye receives significantly less light than younger, healthier eyes. As a result, this means that seniors with low vision require environments with more lighting. So when you're dressing, when you're working around the home, doing whatever, you need significantly more light. And the tricky part is what may seem like bright lighting to younger people, your younger family members, or caregivers may seem like very dim lighting to uh, seniors. Right, and it doesn't necessarily mean more light. It means the appropriate type of light. Precisely, Mike. We have to be concerned with glare. The impacts of glare are something which the seniors uh, with low vision struggle with because the biggest problem is uh, too much natural light. So we want to make sure 
that if we're speaking to somebody, we are not um, having them sit or stand in front of uh, natural light, big windows or something. In fact, uh, when you're outdoors during the day, this is a problem, but it can also impair your vision when you're indoors. As I said, uh, facing large windows, um, a lot of bright um, or artificial uh, or natural light sources can be a problem. So you're right. It's not just too much light. It's the right type of light, and the glare is very, very important. And now when we talk about putting on makeup and dressing and things like that, it's very important that we play around. If we're in a setting where we can have professional help to help us with our lighting needs, that's great. But if not, play around with lights and see what work when you get ready in the morning to dress or in your closet area or in your bathroom. I would think this would be something good to talk with the local uh, independent living instructor about. They may be able to set up demonstrations for you of different types of lighting and what so, works and what doesn't. It's a great idea, Mike. I think that um, that was one of my, my the, the big finish, if you will, which is ask. <laughs> we, we have spent, uh, our seniors have spent probably most of their lives being there for others and helping others. And this is a time when we really need to reach out. We need to ask. We need to be helped. And we can do this if they are computer savvy, if our listeners are computer savvy, or have a friend or a relative who is. Get in touch with um, organizations via their website. Find out where those people are in your area. Um, Here in Chicago, we have Lighthouse for the Blind. We have certainly Nationally American uh, Foundation for the Blind, your local ACB chapters. Whatever resources you can tap into, um, real good idea to find professionals who can help you with this, be it uh, individual help or through a seminar. Really, there's many, many ways, certainly, that our vision is affected as we age and how uh, many elements of our lives, our daily living, are affected. But the decreased uh, ability, Mike, to distinguish between different colors and intensities of these colors significantly impacts the elderly eye and then, as a result, significantly impacts our personal image. You know, we didn't stop because we're aging or um, visually impaired. We didn't stop needing to care about how we look or how others perceive us. So it's difficult sometimes to match clothing when many colors are indistinguishable and look alike. Uh, That coupled with the fact that a good 60 to 70% of men for some reason, genetically, um, are visually impaired, and, and that's from youth on. So we've got all these different elements that make it often difficult to discern colors. Grooming activities may also be uh, difficult to do with impaired color discrimination. For instance, women suffering from low vision may not realize the intensity of the cosmetic colors they apply, and as a result, may be inadvertently applying too much makeup or, or, or makeup that's darker than they thought. And poor color discrimination also affects one's perception of the environment. And that is something for uh, those of us who are um, looking at a painting our apartments or our homes or we're caregivers. And we need to be concerned with high contrast, um, different color doorknob than the door, you know, our counters, different color uh, cutting boards, and just all these little details. But as it relates to our personal image, it's very important that if we're physically capable of dressing into that we be aware of how we can choose clothing and accessories to look in a way that we want to look and to be socially acceptable. So we have um, issues with regard to clothing, 
hair, makeup we're going to be talking about later. But one thing, Mike, over the years we've heard, um, I'm sure you have, and it, it's, it's been a derogatory term, but the, the term blue hair. What we find is that for women, as our hair gets older, I suppose some men may do this too, but as our hair gets older and, and turns gray, there's often a desire to um, want to uh, tint that and uh, to bring luster back to it. Well, what happens is if your hairdresser is not able to discern these colors or if you are doing this tinting yourself, the yellowing of the lens of the eye as we age filters out the colors of that tint so the elderly eye sees that tint as gray when it may be more purple, it may be a shade less natural looking than we wanted to. <laughs> so it's real important that we at least for the first time we get a professional hair coloring and then we are uh, told, we can always bring our tape recorder along, that's one of my tips, we are given all of the information to go um, do it ourselves if we choose to. So have some assistance at least the first time, otherwise you may come out looking like a mature punk rocker or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and now when I, it's funny when I when I when I hear the term blue hair, um, you know, once again, that's one of those stereotypical derogatory things that that's just sort of uh, grabbed on over the years, and we we don't want to play into those, as as our listeners know, hearing this segment for years and years, we don't want to play into those. Finally, cosmetics are also very very important for women to um, continue wearing if they choose, but to really understand that as our eye age. We're not going to be able to discern the color intensity we're putting on our face. So in order to do that, we usually then will put on darker colors and as a result may look um, inappropriate. So when we are buying cosmetics, very important to uh, go for a, as I call it, low error factor. That means that we can certainly put on three or four more brush strokes, but a lighter shade so that if we do put it in the wrong spot or put a bit too much on, we're not going to make the kind of uh, dramatic error that we would with a darker color. We want to make sure that we have packaging that is accessible for, in some cases, arthritic hands and what have you. So there are a lot of different uh, considerations, but we can still get our needs met. We can still keep on keeping on. And don't be afraid to start over. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, you know. And I think that's really fun. I know you mean it you mean it literally like, hey, just don't be afraid to take the washcloth and, and, and go for it again. It's your palette. You know, just like oops, oops, I've got the navy blue hose on with uh with a black skirt. Well, the world isn't gonna stop spinning on its axis, you know, there's no problem, laugh, giggle it away and, and start over. And I, I think that we have to really, really start uh, lightening up when it comes to this because there may be a time when we do make an error, and it's at those times that we're reminded we're human. What about for the gentleman? The information that I've just given on low vision and uh, the aging eye definitely relate to men as well. And as I go through the tips, we certainly have um, many tips for men. The personal image information for the aging eye is certainly relevant to men as well. And as we speak to um, men in the positive images in the mirrors project sessions, very, very important for men to be concerned with how they are presenting themselves. The population is looking at men as well as women and making all those sorts of judgments and, and we are, for whatever reason, wanting to present ourselves in the best possible way. So it's, it's as relevant for men as it is for women, yes indeed. 
Lynn will return next month with more personal appearance tips. By the time this show is heard by many listeners, the 45th Annual Convention of the American Council of the Blind will be completed. ACB reports will be in Jacksonville, gathering information for inclusion on future shows. Remember, you can hear much of the convention audio anytime by surfing over to acbradio.org. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports. Connecting the blind community around the world, this is ACB Radio. 